2: It is official, all right? Stop playing. Download and subscribe. Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Ioncow. It's cold. Yeah. Just like Nixon, cause and terror. Quick damage your whole era Hard rocks is like the fuck up, I found shot. Yellow style, hazardous, cause I wrecked, this dangerous. I blow spots like Waco, Texas. Watch my back like I'm locked down. Hardcore hit and sound. Watch me act it's here, damn. Hey, 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 hey,
3: tight ass. Journalist, author, hip-hop historian, just released his latest book from the Shoots of Shaolin, the Wu-Tang Saga. Skid Fernando. Welcome to Library Rap, The Hip Hop Interviews with Tim Anico. Thank you so much for being here.
4: Respect, Tim, thanks for having me.
3: So I want to start from um of the beginning, not not the beginning of the book, but the first chapter of your book, and uh, you you know you're you're telling the story of Wu Tang, but you start off with a much earlier date, and that's uh, August 11, seventy three. Why did you decide to start on this date and kind of like retell the story of
4: the birth of hip hop? I think it's important to understand first of all, you know, where hip hop came from and. And it's really, it's humble origins, you know? So August 11th, 1973 is kind of the date that a lot of uh, hip hop historians agree upon as like being the first date that, it was definitely the first day that Cool Herc threw his first party in the Bronx at 1520 Sedgwick Ave. And that kind of marks the birth of the art form because that's when he debuted, you know, this new thing that he that he had kind of come up with called breakbeats, and you know I'm, I'm not going to retell that story again here because it's 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 in the book it's pretty well documented. But you know there was a lot of DJs at the time. There was a lot of people kind of talking over records at the time. You know this is not this is not like something new. But what Herc brought to the table was the breakbeat. And that's, that's so important for the history and evolution of hip hop, you know, because he was basically, he was basically isolating the, you know, the, the climax of the song, you know, where the, where the rhythm went crazy and he was going back and forth on the turn. He was, you know, he was getting two copies of the the same record and going back and forth between the turntables, basically making an extended mix of that. And because you know, that what that allowed was people to actually start rhyming over the beat. And to me, that's the birth of hip hop, because, you know, you have you have people rapping over records as far back as pig meat Markham. You know, here come the judge. And even even way before that, you could, you know, in my first book, The New Beats, exploring the music, culture and attitudes of hip hop, which came out in 1994. I go into all of that stuff, you know, I go into the African griots, you know, I go into the last poets and, and all of the, the, all of the predecessors, the forerunners of hip hop. So rapping in itself has been around, but what Cool Herc brought to the table was, was rapping over beats. And the reason I, the reason I wanted to recap that era of hip hop is, you know, cause now hip hop is such a Hip hop is basically pop music, you know, and it's a global phenomenon and it's very commercial and you know people kind of forget where it came from, you know, and it 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 really came from the Bronx, this really impoverished neighborhood in 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 New York City and it it's amazing it's still amazing to me that it just spread out from there and it spread like wildfire. And if not for this man Kool Herc and his his MC Coke La Rock, you know we wouldn't we wouldn't be talking about this right now. And to me, Wu Tang um, represents the bridge between the that era, the old that we call the old school, the old school era, and what is happening now. You know, and to me, Wu Tang was like the fir- was not the first Renaissance, but was one of the. They, they 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 came in with the Renaissance of hip hop, you know, a rebirth of hip hop, a rebirth of that original concept. I would say that I would say that Run DMC was probably the first Renaissance of hip hop, you know, from from the old school era of you know Grandmaster Flash and Cold Crush, where it was more about kind of routines and and rapping over disco breaks and and. Um, you know, Run DMC brought in the first renaissance of hip-hop. It's just like, it's ba- they basically just brought in the straight beats and straight lyrics over beats, and they changed the style, too. It was more like, you know, they dressed like drug dealers. They dressed like street dudes compared to, like, you know, Grandmaster Flash and them who were, and Melly Mel, who were, like, you know, entertainers. They were more into the showmanship of it, you know, wearing these outfits and, like, crazy... You know, like Daniel Boone caps and and leathers and ballys and shit like that. You know, Run DMC kind of brought in the first renaissance of the stripped down beats and the leather jackets and Adidas. You know, looking like the drug dealers on the on their block. And then Wu Tang, you know, brought in the next renaissance of hip hop, and it was a powerful renaissance in the '90s because in the early '90s you had the the the, the major labels taking over rap. And and that's when we got um, we got phenomenon like Vanilla Ice, you know, and Ice Ice Baby, and MC Hammer, and Young MC. This was like pop rap, you know. It was it was necessary because you know that was when rap was first. That was when rap was on the top of the charts and selling platinum records, and it broke through into the mainstream. But it wasn't reflecting the culture, you know, Uh, you know, there's, there's hip hop culture and then there's rap music, you know, and, and, you know, you got to distinguish between the two. So to me, I had to recap that, that old school era, just to, just to put people in the mindset of, look, this is where it came from. You know, it might be, it might be pop music now, but this is, this was underground shit. You know, this was like only people in this neighborhood knew about this shit back then, And actually, Wu-Tang had a connection to the the Bronx, to the South Bronx, because Jizza, who's like the elder dude in Wu-Tang, you know, his father used to live in um, Soundview Projects. So when Jizza was just like a, a tween, when he was like 11, 12, 13, he was exposed to all that original hip hop that was going on in the Bronx. And then eventually he brings his cousin, Robert Diggs, and exposes him to it. And Robert Diggs, who became the RZA, he was, you know—that that changed his life, you know. And uh, and then they they introduced their other cousin, Rusty Rusty Jones, Russell Tyrone Jones, who became Old Dirty Bastard. So I think it, I think it's important to connect these guys to the source, you know, because they 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 saw what was going down. They were kids and they were influenced by it, and. They and they basically updated the original formula of hip hop to a new era in the '90s, and now we know, you know, now we know the '90s is another kind of formative period in hip hop. The boom, the boom bap era. You know, people people call it the golden age of hip hop. Even though when I was coming up, the golden age to me was like '86 to '88. You know, when you had like Eric B and Rakim, KRS One, Public Enemy, Eric, uh, EPMD. To me that was like the first golden age and to me the nineties is like the second golden age. So
3: And and because I want to go back to actually I want to go back to ninety three, right? Uh yeah. you, you, you write uh quote, Everything from New York's Forbidden Borough, the original Man collective hits kids like a scud missile with Enter the Wu Tang, thirty six chambers. Take us back to take us back to ninety three. What did you what did you know about Stanley Island's hip-hop scene at the time? I mean, what did you end up learning about it that maybe you just weren't familiar with? And then, how long do you think, you know, we always talk about, like, Artifact, you know, like, Elder Sensei from the Art- Artifacts uh, talked about, I know, different state, but you know, he talked about how, like, when he, they used to come to New York, they used to hide the fact that they were from Jersey, right? Uh-huh. Uh, was that kind of the, the same deal in, with Wu-Tang having to hide, did they ever have to hide the fact that they were from Staten Island? I mean, were they worried that how that would be, you know, the Forgotten Burrow is, is like taking hip hop by storm?
4: Yeah, well, that's a, that's an important point. Yeah, because in that, in that time, um, Staten Island was pretty much non-existent you know staten island as a borough was persona non grata in hip-hop no one no one gave staten island props you go to parties and you know the dj whoever whoever was djing back then would be no is brooklyn in the house you know queens in the house boogie down bronx manhattan you know, all the boroughs were represented. No one ever said Staten Island. Man. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like it was almost like a joke. Um, and you know, when I talked to the individual members of Wu Tang, like especially Raekwon, he was like, you know, Staten Island got no respect, and 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 that was that was a that was a big issue for them because they used to go to these parties too. You know, they used to go to Latin Quarter and the Red Zone and stuff like that. And imagine, imagine like. And, and, you know, Staten Island was well-represented in those parties, too, because, like, he, used, he, used to, he, used, he said, like, 100 dudes used to take the ferry over when they were teenagers to go to, like, the Red Zone and Latin Quarter, Union Square, all these, all these uh, you know, hip-hop venues that, are, that were formative, but obviously they're not around anymore. And imagine, like, 100 dudes from Staten Island, they're at the party, and they don't hear the DJ shouting out their borough. You know, so that they, they got a chip on their shoulder already. So I think that was really important to them at the time. And you know, I had you know I had been I'm I'm well, sorry about that. I had moved out to New York, um, in in '91. And you know, I one of the first things that I did when I'm when I moved to New York was just go to the South Bronx and just walk around, you know, just like kind of get lost and walk around just to, just to see what this, just to get the feel of the neighborhood and to to feel what the streets were like. Because to me, that was like Oz, you know, because I had heard about the South Bronx and all these records, you know, but to actually see it and feel it was like a whole different thing. And, you know, eventually I made it out to Queens, I made it out to Brooklyn you know what? I never bothered to get on the ferry and go out to Staten Island because what the hell was in Staten Island? You know, it had the, it had the reputation back then of just being a place where the mob lived, you know, and, and like in a big Italian neighborhood. And, you know, I, I I had no, I had no desire to go out there, you know? So, um, that was, that was, that was really the case back then, you know, like Staten Island, you know, now we, you know, now we know, knowing our history that like the force MDs came from out there, but they were, even though they started out hip hop, they, they went more into R and B. And I, I, one group that, that was representing Staten Island at the time, which was like 91, 92 was the UMCs. I don't know if you remember that group. I think they were signed to Jive. And um, they were more of like a, kind of more of a kind of a poppy group even though those guys knew Wu-Tang at the time they knew RZA and them and you know RZA shouts them out and everything but they weren't um you know they didn't really they didn't really play up the Staten Island roots either you know so uh, I could totally see why El Desensei and those guys from Jersey would be like that too because you know jersey wasn't getting that kind of respect either until until probably naughty by nature broke through you know and then you had like poor righteous teachers you had apache you had all the whole flavor unit was pretty much from jersey you know like kim shabazz and all those all those people queen latifah but um yeah it was that was very that was very important back then where you came from and obviously Brooklyn got the most respect, you know, because Brooklyn was like, Brooklyn was pretty hard back then, you know, like you went to parties and it was always Brooklyn who was acting up and starting fights and stuff like that, you know, and Queens obviously has, you know, run DMC, LL Cool J, Marley Marl and the Juice Crew. So they were well represented and, um, it really took Wu Tang to put Staten Island on the map. And, you know, I talk about that first, um, their record release party at Webster Hall in Manhattan. And no one, no one even really at the time, even though Protect Your Neck had been, been banging in New York for about a year, no one really kind of knew what the Wu Tang looked like. And then you show up at this record release party and there's like a, there's freaking a hundred dudes on stage. So, you know, they brought half of Park Hill with them. They brought half of Stapleton with them. And they and you didn't and you still didn't know who was in the group until people started rhyming, you know? So that's how that's how hungry Staten Island was at the time. You know, it's like Riza talks about it. You know, it's like he felt like these guys were in the dungeon, and then they finally got let loose, and you know, they just came out with all this energy and power you know and they and they they made people know who staten island was after that you know shaolin
3: you know you write about how each of the members have this incredible entrepreneurial spirit and you know in each of them right and from like uh-huh. as kids to obviously it's, you see them now to now um, but what is it about the wu-tang story being a wu-tang the group and it was being being birthed out of Staten Island versus the other boroughs, that makes this story particularly so. so I think so special uh, in in regards to a New York story, but also a hip hop story.
4: I think because because stat because of the geography of the place, Staten Island is an island, you know, and as an island, they're kind of isolated, you know that. To their credit, all the guys in Wu Tang used to leave Staten Island a lot, you know. So, like, especially RZA, he was all o- he was all over town. He was in the Bronx, he was in Brooklyn. He was he spent enough time in Times Square watching all the kung fu flicks and stuff. And the same thing with the other guys in the, in their era, because there was really nothing going on in Staten Island. There were no parties there except like house parties. They had to they had to travel to experience hip hop. Okay. So they had to go to the other boroughs, experience hip hop, and then they brought it back to Staten Island. And because Staten Island was so isolated, they kind of developed hip hop, you know, amongst themselves. And um they you know it they it kinda it kinda it kind of it kind of grew and developed. It's like, it's like when I went to Cuba. I, I recently went to Cuba, you know. And when you when you go to Cuba, one of one of the things that Cuba is famous for, Havana, is like all these car, American cars from the 1950s. And it's amazing that they have all these cars there from the 50s. But if you know if you know the history of Cuba and everything, when the when the embargo and the blockade started, that was like right during the fifties. So no, so basically after the fifties, everything got shut off and there was no other type of cars coming in. And it's kind of the same thing with Staten Island, you know, it's kind of like, like the first time I went out there, it was like going back in time. You know, it's like, everything is, everything is kind of a throwback in Staten Island. It's it's almost like suburban in a way, but it's, everything is well preserved there and like time kind of stands still, you know? So I think that is really important because even though the Wu-Tang guys were having, were getting influenced by stuff that was going on in other boroughs, they brought it back to Staten Island and they had time to work on their craft, which was rhyming, emceeing, which was making beats. They had time to work on that craft for years without any, disturbance, you know? And it's just like, I think RZA said in his book, it's like, you know, it's like King Kong, you know, could only have developed on an island because there's no other influences, you know? And so King Kong grew. And it's it's like the same thing with, with Staten Island, because it's isolated and because you have to really make an effort to get there, there's not a lot of things coming in. So these guys... Even though they, were, though they were influenced by hip hop, they had a time. They had that time and space to develop their craft amongst themselves, you know. And that was so important because um, they were neighborhood stars before any of us ever knew about them, you know. And that was so important because a lot of groups in hip hop, you know, the you know, hip hop is a young person's game, and a lot of these guys are teenagers when they get into it and they'll get signed to a major and put out an album. And then that's like the last you hear about them, you know, but, but Wu-Tang had time to just learn and grow and develop. And, you know, RZA probably had like tons of beats by the time, you know, Wu-Tang matured and got signed to a label. So that's why, in the years following that, you know we had so many different albums coming from this man you know we had like we had um, you know Method's album ODB's album, Raekwon's album jizz's album and they all sound different because Riza is sitting on all this material that he's been developing for years and he's been developing his style for years and the same thing with the mcs you know they were they, they were developing their styles and the only pe- people that they had to go up against was themselves. So it was like steel sharpened steel. You know, they were competing against themselves and they, they reached such a high level of, of lyricism. And, you know, when, when it was finally time to birth the Wu-Tang, we were all just blown away by what they had because, because of that island mentality and because of the time and the years that they spent perfecting their craft.
1: Uh
3: Ghostface spits on the opening track of Bring the Ruckus, uh off Tang's debut album, uh Ghostface has a Oh
2: shit, high
3: take and you think about the members of this group and, and you know there's 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 nine of them, right? Um uh, so you imagine that any of these members could be, you know, could have started off the track, um, the opening track of their album. Uh, what's this for you? What's, what's the significance of Ghostface doing so?
4: Well, I think, um, yeah, that, that is kind of surprising because, um, well, first of all, it's a dope ass verse. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Shit, let's, let's give it up for Ghost. That's like, but, um, I think at the time, you know, RZA and Ghost were roommates at the time, so they were probably the most closely connected. That's why on the original B-side of Protect Your Neck, you have um, After the Laughter, you know, because that's a that's a RZA and Ghost track. And they had actually recorded that on their own. Um, and, you know, obviously RZA used to do tracks with all the – the, all the individual members, but because he was roommates with Ghost for that time, for that period, right before they got the deal, you know, RZA had, RZA had uh, he had gone out of town for a minute to Steubenville, Ohio, and then he got into trouble out there. And after he after he beat his case, he came back to New York. And the first place that he moved back to was Stapleton Projects, which is... That's Ghost. That's Ghost Country. You know, Ghost grew up in Stapleton. He's the only member of the, of the clan from Stapleton, and um, so so RZA and Ghost were pretty much roommates living in Stapleton. You know, there was a bunch of other guys living there. Um, Born, who was RZA's younger brother, was living there. I think Divine was locked up at the time, but those were those were like. Um, those were hard times. Those were really hard times, you know, right, right before they got the the deal and pretty much they were living on oodles and noodles and, you know, just watching Kung Fu Fu flicks and smoking blunts and making beats. So I think RZA and Ghost had a special chemistry during that time, even, even more so than the cousins, you know, cause, cause and ODB were in Brooklyn at the time. You know, doing their thing, so they didn't—they didn't have that daily connection with RZA like Ghost did. Um, so I think that's why I think that's why Ghost starts off that track, and probably also, you know, he had the best verse. He had the best opening verse to kick it off because, like I said, there was a lot of competition on that first album for for verses and. It, and you can you can hear it on that whole first album. Dudes are rhyming like their life depended on it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it, it really did because at the time, a lot of them were all involved in the street game and they did not want to be, you know, they really did not want to be. As much as people glorify the street life and cr- dealing crack and all that shit, even, you know, even Raekwon, I, 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 I was lucky enough to read Raekwon's, book, which is coming out in November of this year, it's called From Staircase to Stage. And I, you know, I, I wrote a little blurb for the back of that. And even Raquan, you know, he was like desperate to get out of that, you know, no one, I mean, who, 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 who would want to be in that game? Right. You know, it's like you're getting people getting locked up, people getting shot, people getting killed. That's, 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 that's nothing to, to be involved with. So even even though from the outside it seems like rap glorifies that whole crack era, to me it, they don't. You know, it's it's like they're telling they're telling you a deep story about it, but they don't want to be involved in that. You know, and um, yeah. So just getting back to your question, that's I think that's why Ghost kicks it off because he had the he had the he had the dopest verse, and also he was he had this closest connection with Riz at the time because they were roommates and they were living together and they were probably doing shit daily, you know, working on shit daily. So,
3: uh, you know you think about each member of the group and you know as a kid listening to them there's obviously a different impression you have of them but then you get older and you learn more about them and you kind of realize how geniuses they are uh and i, I want to ask you about odp because you know as i you know, as a kid watching him and you know this is when you know, mtv played music videos right uh I was exposed him as I guess I was probably like 12 at the you know 12 at the time as like the 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 quote unquote silly one the crazy one right, and then you get older and then you kind of learn more about the addictions that he was dealing with, um at the time and kind of how you know it it takes you aback and you kind of sad and you know that that he was portrayed this way, but then reading your book, what's great is that you talk about how he's just like this is kind of musical sponge, right? I think you call him a musical sponge where his like influences are his uncle Fred dancing, you know, uh, to kind of the Beatles, the Marvin Gaye and all this stuff. Can you talk about how, um, and why ODB worked so well within this group?
4: Well, to me, uh, and I think if you ask the the individual members of the clan, I think ODB was like the heart and soul of Wu-Tang I think if I think if you had to have one member who represented the whole Wu Tang and what they stand for, it would be old dirty bastard, you know. And he was he was crazy before he got into substances, you know. He was he was crazy from birth, you know, if you talk to his if you talk to his family. I I, I spoke a lot to his older brother Ramsey Jones, who's a who's a very cool cat and you know he gave me a lot of perspective on ODB growing up and I, and I, and ODB's mother Miss Cherry Jones was also a great um source for this book as far as you know what what ODB was like as a kid and you know he was just one of those dudes he was just you know and and I think the reason that he resonates with so many people is that he's a, he's a, he's a free spirit, you know, and you, and you, you don't get, you don't find too many people like that in the world today, you know? So everyone's got to appreciate a, a a person like that. Who's just, who's honestly just free, you know, who, who's, who's just does what they want, says what they want. He's not, he's, he's never out to hurt other people. The only person he really hurt was himself in the, in the end, you know, but um you know, um, he was he was all he was always the guy. Even even when you look at old Wu Tang um, footage on YouTube and stuff like that, from even like before they were signed, there's some there's some there's some really great stuff on YouTube of like ODB boot, beatboxing for RZA and stuff like that, and you know also the the funny thing about ODB is as ghetto as he kind of portrayed himself he was also the guy who who probably had the most normal family life you know which I kind of go into in the book he was he was one of the only dudes who came from a two-parent family you know where both the, both his parents worked you know even though they were on public assistance for some for part of the time both his parents were you know worked You know he had all his brothers and sisters. You know he had brothers and sisters. It was it it seemed like a really good family life. You know, and um, Mr. William Jones Sr. was a was a huge music aficionado, and he did he was not only into black music, he was not only into soul, jazz, and R and B, but like I said, he was into the Beatles, he was into Hendrix and he introduced ramsey who's the oldest child in the family he introduced ramsey to all this music and you know how it is like i in my family there's three people I, i'm i got older brother and sister and it was my older brother sid who really set the tone for music in my family any anything that he listened to we all listened to so i can totally see how In ODB's family, it was Ramsey Jones, who was bringing back all these records. And Ramsey was influenced by his father, you know. And, you know, Mrs. Jones was an amazing singer in her own right. You know, she was almost signed to Columbia as a teenager, but she came from a very conservative family, a church-going family. And, you know, her mother wouldn't have it, you know. so, But yet... They they grew up in this musical household, you know, they were singing church songs, and then you know, you had the the influence of of Mr. Jones Sr. Then you had the influence of Ramsey Jones, who was the first kid in the family to go out to Greenwich Village and go go to all those record stores that they used to have back in the day, like Bleaker Bob's and stuff like that, and bring back stuff. So imagine ODB exposed to all of this stuff, you know. And he's the guy. He's like the he's like the class clown in his family. So, so even though like all his family was like musically oriented and musically talent, talented, and you know Ramsey is still a, an amazing professional musician. He's in he's in a few groups, and I saw him recently. You know, before COVID, I saw him uh, backing up Jizza, backing up his cousin Jizza. With a live band, and that that was amazing. They did Liquid Swords live, and I, that was amazing, man. They did all the samples and everything live. That was incredible, you know. That's like so. Imagine coming from a family like that, you know, and just being exposed to all this music, and you know, being the being the the class clown and the free spirit that. ODB was he just put that into all of his music and you can see it on his you can see it on his first album you know he in the middle of a track he'll break out into blue moon you know and and shit like that which is the last thing you expect you know so um yeah I mean I I, I could talk about dirty for days because he's just he's just an he's just an incredible character but I think what really resonates with people is just that free spirit because all of us, you know, all of us are so kind of programmed and constricted by society and what you're supposed to do and what you're, you cannot and cannot, can and cannot say in public and stuff like that. All of us are, all of us are under that, you know, but dirty was not, you know, he had, he had no rules and no editing and, and, And even amongst the clan, you know, it's like when they lost Dirty. I think like I saw Ghost in an interview, and Ghost was like, "Yeah, that's like losing a leg, you know. That's like that's a, that's a huge thing for for them to say, you know. That's because like you you, you got to stand on your legs, you know. And if you don't have your legs, you have no support. So that's that's a huge thing for for the guys to acknowledge about Dirty too. And he was on. He was you couldn't control a dude like that, which is like. Another thing, you know, and to me, that's to me, that's that's Wu Tang all the way, because it's like unpredictable, you know, the witty, unpredictable talent and natural game. ODB embodies that phrase, you know, down to every atom in his body.
3: Um the The producer, uh, you know, executive, uh, Dante Ross, I think has a great quote in your book, and he quotes he, about ODB, he says, he was a brilliant mind before substances took real control of him. He was one of the most creative minds. He really understood himself as an artist, and all in all that madness, he gets portrayed as a buffoon sometimes. And I think that's like, it's easier to think of him as a buffoon than someone who was really creative and understood himself as an artist. Um, from your interviews with his family and, and kind of knowing him as well. Uh what 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 was what, what was his ODB's thoughts about how the media had portrayed him and uh did he care much? I mean, you know, there's the story about how, you know, he took the 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 drive in a limo, right? Uh, MTV to pick up his uh, food stamps and but then you talk about how like that actually Help increase sales of his album, and you know, ended up to a the track fantasy track with Mariah Carey and stuff like that. So, what was his thoughts about how the media was portraying him?
4: Well, you know, I don't want to I don't want to speak for Dirty or, or trying to get into his mind, mm-hmm. but I would say that Dirty was very aware of everything that was going on, and it's like sometimes. Um, you know, when you're when you're given this reputation as a as a crazy guy, as a madman, you kind of run with it. And and one example that I I will give is a man who's very much like Dirty in, in many ways, and he he just recently passed as well. And his name is Lee Scratch Perry. Mm-hmm. You might be familiar with him because he was he's one of the. Uh, he's he's another like one of the amazing creative geniuses behind reggae. Right. You know? yeah. He 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 taught Bob Marley how to sing basically, and he was, and he's and also Perry was like, you know, one of the architects and innovators of dub. You know, which is like the foundation of reggae. It's the foundation of hip hop too. And Lee Perry was also one of these guys who's, who's, who's thought of as just crazy. Because, you know, at one point he burned down his studio, the Black Ark. And uh, by the way, he did that because he, there was all these people hanging out there. And he was like, he was like tired of it. He was like, get, let's get rid of these people. But the point I want to make is that sometimes when you're, when you're given this crazy uh, reputation, you kind of run with it you know, and it doesn't happen. It doesn't help when you're abusing cocaine and abusing alcohol. That doesn't really help. You know, it's like, that kind of feeds into the frenzy. But I think in the, I think in the early days, especially like on his first album and, you know, I, I I read Buddha Monk's book, Buddha, Buddha Monk was, was Dirty's kind of best friend from the neighborhood and kind of like right-hand man. And he talks a lot about the making of that first ODB album. And he was there pretty much every step of the way, you know. And he, I I quote some some of his stuff in the book about how, you know, Dirty would be off doing something, you know, messing with some girls or something. And he'd call in and he'd ask to hear the track that they were working on. And he would make tweaks over the phone. So this guy, you know, this guy knew exactly what was going on. And you know, also the stunt that he pulled with uh, MTV—you mm-hmm. know, taking a limo to pick up his his welfare check or his, his his food stamps. You know, I mean, what a brilliant what a brilliant idea! And it worked. You know, it got him so much attention. People who really knew Dirty, obviously his cousins knew him, Riz and Jizza. Obviously the clan knew him. Obviously Dante Ross knew him really well. People who really knew him well. Knew that he was this super smart, intelligent guy. Uh, at the same time, he's a free spirit, and you know everyone's calling him crazy and and weird. And you know you kind of you kind of you kind of run with that. You know the ego kind of likes that and kind of runs with it. And the problem is, uh, you know o, o, ODB had created this character, old dirty bastard. And at a certain point, he became that character, you know. And that's one of the downsides of um, ego, of you know, substance abuse. But you know, I I, I didn't want to get, I didn't want to try to get into his mind because, mm-hmm. to be honest, I have I have never interviewed Dirty Bastard. I've met him several times, and I've interacted him with him several times. But we never sat down for a face-to-face interview. He's the only guy in the clan that I never interviewed face-to-face. But I've had numerous run-ins with him, usually on the street. Because I I used to live in Brooklyn. I used to live not too far from his grandmother's place. And I can can say about three, four times that I ran into him on the street just alone. And just kicked it with him for a while. You know? Right. And, And it's just like... Just, just like, just funny funny instances, you know, funny instances. I can tell you one time I was at the Source Awards, the first Source Awards, and I happened to have two uh, all-access passes and they were hanging on a lanyard <laughs> around my neck. And I was backstage and there was all dirty and I was like, yo, what's up, man? And I was like... Um, Yo, I live, I was like, yo, I live like um, right near your grandmother on Putnam. He was like, word. And then he sees these two lanyards around my neck and he was like, yo, dog, let me get one of those. I got, I got people that I got to try to get in and they ain't letting me in. Can I get one of those? And I was like, I was like, for sure, man. And I gave one, I gave him one of my lanyards, to, you know, to get one of his people in and he was just like so appreciative it was like, oh peace oh peace brother I was like and I, I, I called him Aan at the time I was like, no problem A anything you, any time brother and you know that's a, that, that's the type of guy he was like even though he was even though he was like crazy, you know he had this reputation and this kind of image of being crazy if you if you talk to him one on one He was a completely cool guy, completely down to earth. And, um, you know, I've heard that, I've heard that from so many people, like, and especially like people in Brooklyn, you know, he used to, he used to stop his BMW at traffic lights, get out and just go hand out money to people, you know, because he loved his, he loved his community. He loved Brooklyn. He was like a, he was like the number one Brooklyn representer. And I remember like when his album came out, it's like you could feel it on the streets of Brooklyn. You could feel the pride. You know, it's like you hear that album blasting from all over the place in Brooklyn. And, you know, the, his, his community gave him love right back, you know, even though he had, even though like he got, people tried, a couple of times he got, you know, people tried to rob him and stuff. He was much loved in the community And, you know, he, he just kept it real. He kept it a hundred percent real, you know, and in, in the book, I, you know, I, I I don't attempt to go inside his mind, but I, 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 I wanted to show, you know, kind of his, his downward spiral and how it actually occurred because it, it, it didn't really have to happen that way, you know, and, um, you know, it's 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 a substance abuse, but um, you know be, behind all of that, he was just like a highly intelligent dude, and just a hundred percent authentic dude, and just good natured, down to earth, and you know I, I can't I can't say enough good things about him. You know that's why that's what we have to remember him for. You know we shouldn't remember him for his last concert you know when he's you know high on crack or whatever he was into at the time you know that's that you know unfortunately drugs take out a lot of entertainers you know i mean look at the whole history of music look how look how drugs have 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 just totally taken out entertainers and there's very few people who can who can get get past that you know even even you know even like a genius, a legend like John Coltrane was a heroin addict for a while. You know, he was able to, he was able to get over it. And that's when he entered his real spiritual phase, you know, and, but that takes a, that takes a, a really special person. And, and, and really when you're on, when you're on drugs to that extent, you, you really need outside help, you know? And I obviously, you know, even though, um, o d b wasn't rehab and stuff like that he wasn't getting the he wasn't getting the help and the support that he needed you know so it it is what it is but um we should remember him for the for this free spirit that he was and the intelligent guy that he was because pulling off stunts like that m t v okay. stunt was just pure genius man that was just pure genius <laughs>
3: And that's kind of like, I mean, the real, I mean, I think the a big takeaway from this book is that there is this, I mean, I mean, I said it before, but like, there is this entrepreneurial it's, it's genius behind all of them. Like, you know, it's like every move seems very calculated what they're doing,
4: whether we know it or not. Exactly. Uh, you know, exactly. And you, and, and, you know, you got to credit Riza too. You got, you know, I mean, Riza. You know, I I talked about how they used to sell newspapers at the, at the uh, Arizona bridge and stuff like that. How he used to shovel snow. You know, I used to be a kid like that too, because like when you grow up poor, um, you kind of have to do that. You know, it's like, no one's giving you shit. You gotta, you gotta go out and make stuff happen for yourself, you know, and all of these guys, you know, come from that mentality, you know, unfortunately they grew up in a neighborhood where, where the, where the easiest opportunity to make money was the crack game, you know? So eventually all of them got into that, but now look at them, you know, now look at all the entrepreneurial stuff that they're doing. Raekwon has his own wine, his own, his own brand of wine. You know, meth is doing like, um, weed you know he's doing he's do, they all they all have other things going on which is important you know because we all know that this music thing you know it can only last a certain amount it's like you know but even that even that you know they're they're all in their 50s now and they're still doing shows and stuff like that they can do that you know they because they are wu-tang and we still want to see him perform we still want to see them tour we still want to see him make albums, you know, we're the fans like myself. I'm, I'm just, a, I'm just a fan at the end of the day, you know, even though I had ridiculous access to them back in the day, let me tell you, man, I'm, a, I was a, you know, I'm, I'm still a fan. And when I'm sitting with them all in one room in LA, you know, watching Kung Fu flicks, I was like, I had to pinch myself. I was like, damn, am I really here? You know? Um, Cause, 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 you when you're around them like that, they're just real down to earth brothers, and you know it's not. It, this was back. This was back in the day, back in the '90s. You know, I, I don't know how they are now. Maybe they're, maybe maybe it's gone to their heads and stuff like that. But um, they're all all really down to earth and very cool people to be hanging out with and. The type of dude that you would want to, type of dudes that you would want to have a beer with, you know, and just kick it. So I was just lucky to be that fan who had that extra access. And that's why I went into journalism in the first place, just to meet all the people that I wanted to meet, you know, because I'm, I'm really into music. And, you know, journalism has allowed me to do that, you know. Saying goodbye, like
2: neck, the Dex on the set. The rebel, I make more noise than heavy metal. The way I make the crowd go wild. Sit back, relax, on style. Ray got it going on, pal. Call me the rap assassinator. Rhyme's rugged and built like Schwarzenegger. And I'ma get mad deep like a threat blow up your project, then take all your assets, cause I came to shape the frame in half with the thoughts that wrong, shit like math. So if you wanna try to flip, go flip on the next, man, cause I'll grab the clip and pitch it with 16 shots and more I got going with
0: the BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy,
1: Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
0: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
1: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's
3: cause I want to ask you about uh, two, I think, really... Yes. Uh, in terms of two significant, uh, um, I guess, uh, business events, right, uh, that the, uh-huh. the, the, the the group, the clan, did, and that's uh, first talk. If you could uh, talk about the RZA creating this deal for the group, a yeah, you know, right. record deal for the group, without locking in individual members to this deal, uh, and kind of the significance of that, especially at that time, and how he was able to. I guess, command that kind of deal, right? I mean, first-time artist. You know, you don't right. you just think of that. You're like, how, how does someone do that? And then also, if you could talk about, um, you know, 2015, this continued outside-the-box mentality that Wu has where they, you know, they they pretty much made a record-in-secret, auctioned off at, like, the highest bidder and, they, you know, world's most expensive album, right? Right. Uh, how do you think that came to play, or how did they just come up with something like that, knowing full well that they're at a time in their career that they could do something like that.
4: Okay. Okay. Well, for the first part of your question, as far as, as far as the unprecedented deal that RZA got, you gotta, you gotta remember that Riza had already been burned in the industry once, you know, he he had been signed to Tommy boy as a solo artist and he got totally jerked. And you know Jizza. same thing with Jiza, you know he had been signed to cold chillin, and they didn 't really promote his stuff and they they didn 't really represent him how he wanted to be represented, so Riza especially had a chip on his shoulder, and he was like you know i 'm not this is not going to happen to me again, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me so that that was not going to happen to him again and the way he was able to get that deal though has just as much to do with Steve Rifkin. You know, I think Rifkin, uh, was just like an equal player in, in making that happen because, uh, you know, I go into, I I go into some of Rifkin's background too. Uh, you know, he, he comes from a music industry family. His, his dad and his grandfather, you know, were deep in the industry. Um, and Rifkin was trying to create his own opportunity, you know, he wanted to make it in his own right. So he had this new label called Loud. And um, when RZA approached, you know, he had been trying to, he had been trying to track down RZA, you know, for weeks after he had heard Protect Your Neck. And then when he finally did connect with RZA, you know, they're, they're, I think they're almost the same age too. So, you're dealing with, you know, someone who's kind of like your equal, you know? Um, and RZA approached him as a businessman. And he said, I want this, this, and this. Because he knew, he knew, how, because RZA knew how the music industry worked. You know, he knew that that the deals are not favorable to artists. But here in Rifkin, you had a guy who's, just as hungry as he is, who's starting a new label. So he's thinking, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to make a compromise. And, and, and it was a risk at the time. I'm, I'm going to not take as much money up front, but in exchange for that, you had to give me the stuff that I want. You know, this is what he's telling Steve Rifkin. And what you had to give me is first of all, full creative control on, on the music. You can't tell me what to do on the music and secondly i know that the money that you give me is not going to support all these nine guys that i that i got to look out for so you got to give me the opportunity to shop these guys a deal with other labels cuz i can i can see that you can't you don't have the money that i'm looking for and that was a big risk you know cuz like Rizzo could' have made a record it could have gone nowhere and and they would have they would have gotten sixty grand out of it, you know half of which they spent on making the record and they would have been they could have gone all back to the street again so that was a big risk he took, but at the same time he knew he knew the talent that he was sitting on you know he knew what he had he was operating from his position of power, even though he's a young guy he he was his his genius was knowing that he listen i got something i got some shit here you know so that was riz's genius as a young man to know that listen i have power here it's almost like muhammad ali when muhammad ali was coming up you know here's this shit talking dude from kentucky Who's only like 20 years old and he's got this big ass mouth. He's running his mouth. He's talking about, oh, I'm going to take on Floyd Patterson. I'm going to take on, um, um, shit. What's his name? I can't even. Liston. Yeah. Sonny Liston. You know, he's talking shit about these guys. Have you have you have you, have you seen that uh, PBS documentary? By the way, it, it just it, it, it was just on on Sunday, but it's great. It's great. People should watch that because I, I see RZA as a young as a young Muhammad Ali. You know, he knows the power that he's got, and he's taken on on these big guys and he's challenging challenging them. So he so he approached anyway. He approached Steve Rifkin from a position from a position of power. And even though he was taking a risk, he he eventually he eventually won out. You know, as we see, as history has proven. And every deal that Risen negotiated, and the, one of the great ones was Ray Kwan, because you know he could. They were they, at that point. You know, RCA was trying to was trying to nickel and dime him and downplay him. And I talk about the whole story in the book about you know. There was only a twenty grand difference between what uh, was what RCA was offering and what RZA wanted, but um, because Method Man's album was blowing up, because Dirty's album was blowing up, they had they eventually had to pay Raekwon half a million for that first album, <laughs> which was which was a lot more than they had planned to pay him. So as you as you keep on negotiating these bigger deals, you get more and more power, you know? So RZA at in the, in the mid nineties, he was a, you couldn't touch him. He was a giant. He was a giant. And all of these dudes like Puffy and Jay-Z, they saw what he was doing and they were inspired by what, by what he was doing. Cause at that time, no, no artists were commanding, deals like that you know you couldn't you couldn't get you you couldn't get deals like that you know and now it's almost like people take it for granted but let's be honest man Puffy you know started blowing up in the late 90s and Jay-Z after that and those guys benefited heavily from what RZA was doing you know and you know a contemporary of Riza was is Dr dre you know dr dre same thing you know he's he know he knows the power that he has and he 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 you know he's been able to parlay that power into some serious deals you know and now let's now if you want to jump to 2015. With this, with this one-off Wu Tang album, "Once Upon a Time in Shaolin," that was another masterful stroke by the RZA. You know, because he didn't really have to do anything, because um, you know this guy Silver Rings kind of spearheaded the whole project, and it was kind of it was kind of Silver Rings' whole idea to begin with. You know, for this one-off idea, and it's a, it is a brilliant idea. You know, to sell music like like fine art, you know, like Mm -hmm. to sell an album as if it's a Basquiat piece, you know, or, or, or Rembrandt or, you know. Um, But, you know, RZA had this relationship with Silver Rings, which I go into in the book and, you know, Silver Rings eventually ends up going on tour with RZA, you know, when RZA was doing Bobby Digital, the solo thing and Silver Rings opened up for Riza on that tour. So they be, you know they became um they became friends and they became tight. So that, you know Silver Rings is t- is talking about all these ideas he's got and one of them was for that one-off album. And I think it's a brilliant idea. I wish I just wish Riza had produced the album, you know, because at the end of the day, Silver Rings is the guy who who, who 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 produced off all the beats on that album, and that's why all the clan is kind of mad at him because he kind of kept it secretive from them too. You know, he didn't he didn't really tell them what this was going to be for, and then it all came out after the fact. But the way that they um, the way that they that they marketed that album. It was just, um, you know, they, they auctioned it off. And uh, it's, a, it's an incredible story. And I think, um, you know, there's a book about that, that. There's a book about that whole incident. And it just goes to show, you know, even like years later, the power that Wu-Tang has in, in, the, in this industry. I mean, what other group could auction off one of their albums for $2 million, you know, to the highest bidder. I don't think any, I don't think even Dr. Dre could pull that off, you know, and he's probably the only guy on that level of the music and the business who could pull something like that off. And, you know, um, Wu Tang was able to do that. And I just wish that, you know, like I said, that RZA had produced that album. Cause then, you know it would be i think the fa- especially the fans would be so much more um amped about it and you know there's nothing preventing wu tang right now from get getting together and making an album with RZA producing the beats and doing like a throwback style album you know i don't know what's i don't know what's pre- preventing them Well, I'll tell you what's preventing them now because they all now have individual management and, you know, when it gets into the money of the shit, it's all, it's all messed up. You know, it's like even, even, even getting together for the smallest thing. Now they got like nine different managers that they, that have to come together and, you know, negotiate stuff. Where before it was just Wu-Tang management, which was divine. You know, I guess that didn't work out for the guys, so they had to get you know they, they had to they had to break away. but artistically speaking, there's nothing that is preventing Wu Tang from doing another album the way the fans would like it done, you know with RZA handling most of the production because I know he's I know he's got beats, I know he's got tons of material, you know, even from back in the day. Um, He he wouldn't even have to do new stuff. Imagine, imagine him. You know, imagine if Wu Tang did an album of. Imagine if like RZA found like a a, a box, a shoebox of floppy disks that he had done (laughs) in like '95 that no one's ever heard. Because let me tell you, every time I've been with RZA and he plays me beats. I've never heard any of those. Well, I've heard some, but I, a lot of that stuff I've never heard on Wu Tang albums. And that shit is just like, that shit is just like, whoa. That's just like, if 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 people could hear that shit, like vintage Wu Tang shit, that's it would be over. You know, it would be over. So they could do that. They could do that right now. You know, and RZA, if you're listening, man. Guys, if you're listening, man, this is, uh, you know, this is what the fans want, man. Why don't you guys do it? You could, you could, you could, you wouldn't have to sell one-off copy. And he never came you could sell out. millions of copies of that record. People, people said his brain it.
2: was infected by devils. My father would come home. He would forget about the killings. He wasn't scared of the Shogun, but the Shogun was scared of him. Maybe that was the problem. Then, one night, the shogun sent his ninja spies to our house. They were supposed to kill my father, but they didn't. Change. Sometimes got fast and fast. See, niggas don't know where this is Y'all know where it came from. We're going to take our back
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and not or.
3: like uh, you, you've, a uh, you've obviously have had these incredible opportunities to um, and you talk about it you know sit in sit in sit in studio sessions while the mem- individual members are making albums and, uh, you know, it's like I always like to ask the artists like, if you could be a fly in the wall, uh, like a setting, a, you know, of a record, where would you, like, what album would you want to be on? Or, you know, or listen to being made? And you've been able to be this fly in the wall during these albums. And I, and I want to ask you about your story about being pulled in for a skit during uh, Jizz's album, Liquid Swords. Uh, how did that happen?
4: <laughs> That's what I'd like to know. <laughs> um, well, first of all, um I at that time I was like writing for Rolling Stone so I asked my editor um you know if I could if I could review I knew that I knew that Jizz's album was coming out so I asked him if I could do a review of Jizz's album so just just that excuse you know to write a review about an album I parlayed into spending like several days with Wu-Tang while they were while they were working on that album. You know, I went to a couple studio sessions. I hung out with Jiza a couple of times. I remember smoking a blunt in his in his car with him once and we had a we had a crazy talk about conspiracy shit. And you know, he, we were talking about the movie They Live, um, with Rowdy Roddy Piper. And, you know, these guys are like up on all this crazy information. I think the first time I ever heard about the Illuminati was from Jizza, you know, and this was before Ill- Illuminati was such a common word, a common thing in hip hop. But anyway, I was writing for Rolling Stones. So I parlayed, you know, I parlayed doing a review into basically spending several days with them. And one of those days happened to be the mastering session when they're finally putting the whole album together. The mastering session is where basically you take all the finished tracks and you equalize them, you get them all sounding nice and crisp, and that's the last step before it's sent off to the pressing plant. So that that night it happened to be, um, it would happen to be myself, RZA, Jizza, Killer Priest, Master Killer, and Dreddy Kruger in the mastering suite at sterling sound in manhattan and um they had they had they had um you know finished mastering or they i think yeah i i think they had finished actually mastering the tracks and then rizzo was like oh man we need some we need some skits for this album we need some we need some you know supplementary material because basically if you know if you know wu tang albums it's never just music, you know. There's all there's skits in between the songs. There's little snippets of movies and stuff like that. And I think RZA had been so busy working on all, on all this other stuff that he had he didn't have time to get that all that shit together. So he was doing this at the very last minute in the mastering session. So the first thing he does is send out the studio engineer out to the Deuce, which is Times Square, to get this movie. Uh, Shogun Assassin on, on VHS. I had never seen the movie. I had never heard of it. It's actually a Japanese samurai flick, and it is one of the most violent uh, movies you will ever see. And the, the assistant came back with the VHS, so we hooked up the VHS, and we end up watching the whole movie, which is like an hour and a half. And, you know, mean, meanwhile, they're paying um they're paying for for the for the room. You know, it, it costs three hundred fifty dollars an hour to even be in this room, and meanwhile they're watching this whole freaking kung fu movie, which I know they had seen many times before. And it's just like it's like I said, the only thing that was missing with, was the popcorn. Everyone's kind of like sprawled out on the couches, and they're like laughing at these things. And it's just like over the top violence. I was like, "Damn, this shit is like so over the top violent." It's like you, it's like, it's like the guy, the main character, the samurai, cuts off someone's head with this with one swipe of his sword, and it's like a fountain of blood spurting. You know, it's like shh. And um, that's where they, that's where they got all of the, the snippets for liquid swords. The, the little kid talking—that was the son of the samurai. You know, when my father was young when I was young, my father was a samurai. All of those snippets came from that movie. So anyway, we finished watching the movie. Uh then we pull out you, we it took it took longer than an hour and a half to watch the movie because when Riza sees a snippet that he likes, he stops the movie, you know, we rewind it, we record it from VHS into the into the mastering guy's dat or whatever. So it took probably like three hours to watch the movie. Then after that, he's like, oh, man, we still we need some we need some more skits for this album. And, um, you know, I'm I'm sitting there the whole time. I'm just I'm just I'm just like a fly on the wall. I'm watching the whole shit. These guys are not paying any attention to me. I'm just, you know, kind of watching. And then he was like and then he and then RZA remembered that I had been on a skit on the Grave Diggers because I was friends with Prince Paul at the time. Um, In fact, you know, back then I used to run an independent label called Word Sound, and I had put out Prince Paul's first solo album called Psychoanalysis, which was basically an instrumental album of beats and skits. And so that's how I got to be friends with Prince Paul. And then when Prince Paul was doing Grave Diggers, he called me, and he invited me to come down to Firehouse because he needed me to read this part for a skit. So I played the Crooked Lawyer on a song called Diary of a Madman from Gravedigger's first album. And that was actually the first time I had met Rizza in the flesh. I had spoken to Rizza on the phone before, but that was the first time I actually met him. So he was there when I recorded that skit from Diary of a Madman. I, I was playing the Crooked Lawyer. I was like, yo, yo, fellas, the judge is my uncle. He'll take the insanity plea. Don't worry. So Rizzo remembered me from that time, and then when we're when he's when he's in this mastering session for Liquid Swords, he's like, "Yo, we need to do some skits." And he was like, Skiz, I want you to play. I, I want you to. I want you to play a, a drug dealer. Just follow my lead." And I was like, "All right, what am I supposed to say?" He said, "Just say like, just follow my lead. Just you know, just just say, do you have the cash and all that shit and." So we so Riz has got the portable dad, and he's acting out this this drug deal, and um, I play this drug dealer called Mister Greco, and this is on the skit that precedes Kill Hills One Hundred Three Hundred Four. So Riz is like, um, yeah, Mister Greco, um, which is me, and. I'm like, do you have the cash, $20,000? And Riz is like, yeah, yeah, we got the cash. We know cash rules, everything around this motherfucker. And basically, um, in the skit, if you listen to the album, um, you know, it's a drug deal going bad. Like one of one of Greco's people has like sold him out. And Riz is like acting out this skit and all the other guys are around him. Master Killer, Killer Priest, Dreddy Kruger. I don't think GZA was there at the time. So like they're all crowding around me. And Riza grabs me by the neck and he's like, you know, he's like screaming at me. And he's like, "You, you your friend Don and Rodriguez is singing his ass off like a fucking bird. He's screaming at me. And all the other guys are like crowding around me. And I, and I, I literally at that point thought <laughs> that I was going to get punched or something. Because I didn't know these guys. You know, I didn't, you know, I didn't know these other guys. I knew RZA and I didn't. I didn't know. The only, I knew Master Killer by reputation because he was in the news for punching out a friend of mine, Cheo Coker, who was a journalist who had written an article about Wu-Tang and rap pages and Master Killer didn't like the artwork that had accompanied that album, the article. So he approached Chao and Chao had nothing to do with it, but Chao got a black eye out of it, you know? So I had heard about Master Killer, but I had never met him. And here's this like silent dude, you know, he's he's like never said a word the whole time. And now he's like all up in my face and Riz is like grabbing me by the neck. And literally, I literally thought that I was going to get beat up. And let me tell you, I, you know, nothing happened. We we just we, we recorded the skit in one take and that was it. And I, I didn't even know it was going to even come out on the album because uh, I would have wanted to do it again because I, really, I didn't really like my accent. I was like trying to put on a foreign accent and I didn't really like it. Um, but it appeared on the final album, which is like, wow. And let me tell you later that night, that that mastering session went on for hours and i heard because i had a friend who worked at sterling sound this guy john ward and i heard that like later that night when wu-tang were leaving like the there was some there was a problem with the elevator and master killer ends up punching out the security guard at sterling sound because the elevator didn't show up on time so I, I feel like I do, I feel like I dodged a bullet that night, and I had a I, I had a good story to tell, you know. After that, and I, I didn't really tell people this, I, you know. I told a few of my friends about that. So th- you know, this story didn't really come out till now. But it's all peace, you know. It's like every time I see Master Killer, he's all, he always like looks smiles at me. He's like, oh, Mister Greco. So we, it's like you know, we always have that kind of inside joke you know and it was you know it was a fun thing to do and it was like to me it it just kind of shows how wu-tang operates you know like the the level of creativity that they operate on basically anything goes and you know with rizza anything goes and you know nothing is out of limits you know and it's like they the the that's 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 like the level of creativity that they operate on, and shit is spontaneous. You know, shit, accidents happen, and that's all a part of, of how they operate. You know,
3: is there a, uh, a is there an album that you kind of you didn't get to sit on, sit in on by the clan or even individuals that you you, you when you first heard it, you're like, damn, I wish I was able to sit on this album.
4: Well, you know, a lot of times um i a lot of times i would go to 36 chambers in manhattan um and the, you don't, you didn't you didn't even know what album they were working on you know like different days there'd be different dudes in the studio i don't think i ever uh i don't think i ever sat in on one of ghosts tracks on that on um iron man Yeah, because, you know, like Ghost was in prison for half that time. I think he was – I think Ghost was in prison. He was on Rikers for like four months during the recording of that album. And, um, you know, they recorded half of it before he went in, and then he was in prison, and then they recorded the rest when he came out. And I would have loved to be around like after he came out because, you know – you know that stint in Rikers had an effect on him, because um, um, you know he, he. I think in in interviews, like he was writing to stuff. He was writing to no beats, basically when he was when he was locked up. You know, so I think that's where a lot of, uh, of a, a lot of that stream of consciousness flow maybe came from. You know, and also you know Ghost 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 was a diabetic and at one point he went to africa he went to um uh i think it was it's in the book i, I kind of forget i think it was like sierra leone but he went to africa to to see a a bush doctor and you know to get to get some natural cure for the diabetes and once again when he was in Africa he didn't have he didn't have like a boom box to write to, you know? So he was just, he was just freestyling, basically poetry. And I think that's where he developed this crazy, insane stream of consciousness flows. Because to me, ghost lyrics are, are like the most inscrutable of all of the clan. You know, it's like, you're trying to figure out what he's talking about. And, you know, sometimes... It makes sense sometimes it doesn't, you know. But it all sounds, it all sounds dope, you know. Whatever he's talking about, it all sounds dope. And um, I think that's, you know, that's an album that I would love to be on. I would love to be around during Dirty's album, that first album, because because even even RZA wasn't around for much of that. You know, he kind of he kind of let Dirty do his thing. And Dirty took like two years to, to 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 work on that album, you know. But you get a lot of you get a lot of information from Buddha Monk, who was around for the making of that, you know. But man, that must have been a crazy album to to be working on, you know, because I remember um, you know, at one point Dirty's wife is comes into the vocal booth and and he 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 gets her to recreate argument that they had you know about groupies calling the house so you know it's it's just crazy like the stuff that they that you know their 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 creative approach to recording albums is certainly unlike any other rapper or hip-hop artist that I've ever been around and I've been I've been in the studio with plenty of artists you know I've been in the studio with plenty of artists I was around for Bob Deep's the infamous album i was i was up in unique when they were recording that album you know i've been i've been in the studio with buster rhymes who's who's an incredible artist to see to see how he works and how he operates and um so i've been around for i you know i've been around for plenty of studio sessions um, epmd um but i've never seen Dudes operate like Wu Tang. I've never seen dudes operate like that, and the dedication, and you know, especially when they had, you know, they had they had a few different um, iterations of thirty six chambers, and one one was when they had the Wu Mansion in New Jersey, and that was when they could basically work twenty four seven. 365 you know they didn't have to pay for studio time or anything and i remember being in there once and like i, I had a video camera and i was like crawling around behind the, the the board and i was getting like dirty looks from meth who was like writing his ron and i was filming raekwon while he was in the while he was in the vocal booth and Rayquan was like oh niggas got Video cameras now and shit. You know, I, I was always like very self conscious because I, I don't like to draw attention to myself when I'm around people, especially when they're creating. You know, so I try to kind of fade into the background. But um, uh, when it, when you have a video camera, it's kind of hard to do that. And I wish I had a video camera more during that time because. I could have, I could have captured some incredible shit. I was, I, I've been in the studio with RZA and Bjork. Holy shit! Wow, that was like some incredible shit. I, and you know, I didn't, I didn't really talk about a lot of that stuff in the book, you know, because um, I don't even know what happened to that stuff that RZA did with Bjork if it even came out. But my man Scotty Hard was the engineer for that session, so that's why I was able to get in there. But I do remember that. Um, They had the New York Philharmonic string section in there. And RZA was getting them to play some of the violin lines that he had played on keyboard. And that was hilarious to watch RZA (laughs) directing the New York Philharmonic string section. Man, That was some hilarious shit, you know. But, um, yeah, I mean... Um, I'm, 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 I'm just, I'm just lucky to, to have been around and, um, I hope I communicated some of that in the book because part, section two of the book, which is bring the ruckus. I go in depth on all the first round of solo albums and, you know, through, through the majority of the book, I tried to keep myself out of it because I, I, I hate to read stuff, you know, that was kind of big in the that was a big thing in the source back in the day. Like the, the journalists would always put themselves in the article and it was like, Oh, look at me. I'm smoking a blunt with Snoop dog on the, on the bus and stuff. And, you know, I, I did that to a certain extent, but I didn't like to do that. You know, especially with this book, I wanted to keep myself out of it. Cause I'm not trying to big up myself. I wanted to show what these guys were doing, but hopefully I, I, I communicated some of that flavor of what it's like to be in the studio with them without putting myself in. it. I told that just a story, just in the preface, that's the only time in the book that I use first person. But for the rest of the book, I pretty much kept myself out of it, you know? Um, even though I was kind of like the omniscient narrator throughout, throughout the whole book, you know? Because I want I want I want the book to read like a story, like a page turner novel that you don't want to put down, you know. Uh I it could have easily been like an oral history, but to me that would have been the lazy way out because you know, I already have like a hundred pages of quotes from all the Wu-Tang guys. I've interviewed all of them multiple times, and I could I could have just taken those quotes and you know, kind of structured them. But to me the the important part of the book is the context that I offer, you know. And the book is just is is, is as much about hip hop as it's as much about New York City as as Wu-Tang. Wu-Tang is almost like the the focus, but I talk about a lot of other stuff, you know, that's related to Wu-Tang. I talk about the the history of the 5% Nation, which is to me is like super interesting. You know, it's like, how did this fringe group originate and how did they come to influence so many rappers, you know, and what is their philosophy all about? You know, and, you know, I talked about the whole cocaine business, the whole crack industry and like how, you know, how the, how, how that all originated you know where it came from and how that influenced hip hop and you know what the movie Scarface had to do with it you know and I go deep into all the kung fu movies that influenced the clan and you know the philosophy The you know i think one reason that i got along so well with Riza is because i'm i'm you know i i'm originally from sri lanka and um i think the 70 four percent of Sri Lankans are Buddhist, you know, and, and Buddhism is not a religion. It's really a philosophy. It's a way of life. And I think early on, I had told Rizza that I'm Buddhist, you know, and he he was obviously very into Buddhism and just spirituality in general. And he was he was always anytime I saw him, he was always reading books about different things. And, you know, you know, I, I, I spoke I, I would talk to him about Buddhism sometimes, Um so I think that's why I had, I always had a good rapport with him, and um, you know Jizza too. These guys can talk about so many other things than just music, you know. And you look at Jizza now; he does, he does talks on science. You know, he's he's hooked up with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he goes to universities and does does lectures. You know, these guys are these guys are real smart dudes, and I think that's what. Uh, that's what really attracted me to them in the first place, uh, was because they were so much, they were so different than any rapper that I had, that I had encountered up to that point, you know, even though they were, even though they were like serious, serious hood dudes, um, they had this other dimension to them, um, this intelligence and this, uh, wisdom that you, that you don't find in people who come from, uh, nothing. And, you know, who are, who are kind of trapped in this environment, they were always seeking knowledge and seeking wisdom. And I think, you know, the 5% influence had a huge, uh, had a lot to do with that. So, um, You know that's why that's why I always respect these guys because they were they were they were head they were so far above anyone else uh, at the time and I think to a certain extent they still are you know and that's why they're still around and that's why they're still relevant and that's why people are still interested in Wu Tang Clan so I just wanted to you know writing the book I just wanted to let people know you know what these guys are really all about cuz it's not just music you know it's not just music at all there's so much more to music than Wu, that that wu-tang has to offer and because i had such a um because i was lucky enough to have such a perspective on them i wanted to share this people i wanted to share this perspective with other people you know cuz at the end of the day i'm a, i'm a huge fan myself and i know that other fans are going to be interested in this stuff as much as i am at the same time i want i want to, i want someone like my mom to appreciate wu tang you know i want my mom to understand why i spent so much time you know bothering with this thing called hip-hop you know you know for her it's all about violence and all this stuff and what the what the media portrays but hip-hop is a is a very deep culture with deep roots, you know, and it's got it's got a deep philosophy. You know, to me, it's like it's on par with Rastafarianism. You know, like I talk about that, you know, how Rastafarianism has influenced reggae. Um, you got stuff like Five Percent influencing hip hop. So it's more than just music. It's more than just a pop phenomenon. Hip hop will always be a culture with deep roots. And you know, so it's a way of life. It's a philosophy that people live, um, and it, because of that, it will it will never really die. You know, it'll just it, it'll just continue to evolve.
3: And and I think you know, I think this is earlier, but like you've done, you do that. You said this in you, you, the the book. I feel I feel talking about each member's childhood and then going into. You know, going into the selling newspapers or shoveling snow, and and essentially leaving like Brownsville, right? To um, right because because he didn't because like Rizzo was like I don't want to get robbed, <laughs> you know, like you know, like the idea that like oh, he was probably you know like it kind of puts that line to be like no, I mean these guys are and there's a lot of guys that are trying to get out and trying to they don't they don't they're not trying to they don't want to be part of the a, a gang life or they don't want to go around robbing people they're trying to figure out ways to get out and. And then, obviously reading up on you know how they've pretty much managed through the the music industry and and expanded them themselves into other parts of other cultures or other 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 forms of business right uh it's 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 fascinating to it's well it's 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 kind of those I wish I had just like something like you know wires that I could connect to each member's brain and figure out how the hell they think. Because it'd be wonderful to to just understand how these guys think and 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 constantly thinking to to make something better for what they need.
4: Exactly. You know, I, I wish I, I wish I did too. Because you know, it's very difficult to get people to talk about um, their childhood and what they they came from. Because there's a lot of trauma in the past. You know, um, and I think it's good. I think that's good. I think it's a really great thing that, that all of the guys are eventually going to write their own books, you know, like you God's book of raw is just phenomenal. You know, the way he talks about um, how he got into the whole crack game and everything. And, you know, obviously RZA has written a couple books about his childhood and, and where he came from and how that, how that's influenced him. And you got to be incredibly strong, to survive all that, you know, I mean, and it makes someone, you know, I grew up poor too, but I didn't, I didn't see someone get shot when I was five years old, or I don't have that trauma, you know, but I did spend um, time in Iraq during the war, you know, like in 2003. And when you're around violent, that type of violence, it's it's not a pretty thing, you know, and you don't, it's not something that you want to glorify at all. It's something that you want to escape. And, you know, it's something that, that leads to trauma, you know, and, and most of these guys living in, you know, what we call the ghetto or the hood or low budget environments, they're, they're trying to get out of there. You know, they don't, they, they don't want to, they don't want to stay there. Most of the people in the projects are trying to get out of the projects, you know, they're, these are these are all decent people who are just trying to live, you know, and mm-hmm. they don't they don't they're, they're, they don't have the opportunity or they don't have the 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 luck that other people have or the opportunities. So you know you got to give it to you got to give it up for people like Wu Tang who made their own opportunities, you know, made their own legal opportunities. Um and that takes a special kind of person and really to me this their whole story is inspirational for anyone you know and i take it i take their story to heart for myself because you know no matter what i've been through in life these guys have gone through 10 times worse and they made it you know so why can't i why can't i do what i want to do why can't i you know make it on my own terms you know that's that's the message of Wu Tang and the message of this whole book, you know, it's like, no matter where you come from or, you know, or what life, or, you know, what life is handed to you, it doesn't really matter because you can use your mind and your intellect to advance yourself and to elevate yourself and to, uh, you know, do exactly what you want to do in life. You know, you don't have to be controlled by the system. You don't have to be manipulated by the man. You can do whatever you want, you know? And it's like Wu-Tang, you had like nine brothers who joined together for a common cause. And really on the outside, that common cause was to make music, but on the inside, that common cause was to escape hell for themselves and their family, get out of hell. And they have done that in spades. You know, they have done that for themselves and their families, and they have they have laid down a blueprint for everyone else to follow, for rappers to follow, for for anyone else who's in a bad situation to follow. You know, I mean, imagine RZA on trial for attempted murder. Imagine getting out of that. Imagine like going on the stand to to d- to defend yourself. And being able to come through that um you know that's that's probably so empowering you know to be able to 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 do something like that and then to turn it into a a positive you know and and now to do what they've done now, it's just like, wow, you know if they can do it, anyone can do it that's that's the message that I take from the book, and that's why I kind of laid it out like that, you know because These guys came from nothing and look where they are today. You know, if they can do it, you can do it.
3: Excuse, I have one more question. Uh, You know, you you think of, you've written this book, uh, From the Streets of Shatland, The Wu-Tang Saga. And just as a pure fan, if you were to give an opening track for your book and then a closing track for your book by either – Wu Tang, the the, the the clan, or an individual member? What would those two tracks be?
4: I think the I think the opening track uh, would be "Bring the Ruckus," and that's really what I wanted to call the book. <laughs> Quite frankly, "Bring the Ruckus" because that's what they brought. You know, Wu kind of Wu Tang kind of surprise us all, you know, they kind of shook up the whole industry and not even just the music industry. They shook up the world, you know, because their music, their lyrics were just unprecedented for, for rap music, for hip hop. And they, they really did bring a revolution, you know, and um, like I said, you know it, it it is all possible it is it is possible you know all things are possible and for the ending of the book i would i would probably do can it all can it all be so simple because it because when when it, when it comes down to it it really is it it really is that simple you know you just have to have an idea and be prepared to do whatever it takes to execute that idea and you can manifest things out of thin air. Which is what Wu-Tang has done. They've created a... They created a movement. They created, you know, tangible things for themselves and their family. And their idea is is, is an idea that time has arrived, you know? It's like... F all the bullshit. F all the excuses you know you can you have you as an individual have the power to achieve and attain what you want to do so let's all let's all focus on that and let's do it.
3: Uh, the name of the book is "From the Streets of Shaolin: The Wu Tang Saga." The author is Skids Fernando. Uh, Skids, thank you so much for being on Library Rock, the hip hop interview with Tim I really appreciate your time.
4: Hey, respect, Tim. Thanks for thanks for
3: the
2: venue. <laughs> And Medina yo, no doubt. The guard got crazy clout, pushing a big joint from down south. Oh, so if you're filthy stacked up, better watch your back and tuck. cause these beams they got it cracked up. Now my man from up north, now he got the law. As solid as a rock and crazy saw. No jokes, I'm not playing. Kid oh. is folks. Desert Eagle is dick and put him in a yoke. And the note for sure, I got wrecking rip shot.